greater? Is our God stronger? Is our God higher than any other? Amen. Amen. He is, isn't he? My son-in-law works at a hospital for the criminally insane. And he told me it's quite a mission field. And he told me that one day he was there and this lady came up to him. She was from India. And she looked at him and she said in this very low guttural voice, my God is better. Just out of the blue. And I said, well, what you should have said is, my God is greater, my God is higher, my God is stronger than any other. He didn't do that, but anyway, (laughs) I thought it would have been a good song to sing. He is greater. He is higher. He is stronger than any other. And as I said this morning, many times I believe we take God and we put him down on our level and we make him powerless. I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 40. You're familiar with this chapter, Isaiah 40. And I want you to start with verse 15, um, let's start with verse 12. This is talking about God himself, who he is. Verse 12 says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Think about that. Measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in measure. Weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has taught him. Has God ever needed a counselor? No. With whom did he take counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the owls as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains Whoever's too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Isn't that sad? And you know, so many times we can put things in our lives before God. We make them an idol versus him and who he is. He wants lordship in our lives. He wants to be supreme. He wants to be number one. And it's so foolish. And yet, sometimes even good things can become idols to us. I had a friend one time, and she had two children, and then she had to have a hysterectomy, and she wanted a third child. And it became her total, complete ambition to have another child. That's all she talked about. That's all she thought about. When you were with her, it was constantly, I want a child, I want a child. They went through all that they needed to do to adopt a child. But it never happened. And one time at a retreat, it was like the Holy Spirit put a mirror 
And she saw that this good thing in her life had become an idol. She had put it before the Lord. And she said, Lord, I don't want anything to be between me and you. I want to put you first. I want to let go of my Isaac. I want to give it to you. She came back from the retreat, and we were having ladies' Bible study that week. And she stood up, and she testified. She said, you know, I just want to share with you guys, I never saw it before, but God has shown me that I had an idol in my life. And this weekend, I gave it to him. Right after the Bible study, a lady came up to her who had never been to the Bible study before, and she said, I heard what you said earlier. I have a friend who's pregnant, and she wants to find a family for her baby. She ended up adopting that child, and about a year later, she had a knock at her door. Somebody else came and wanted her to adopt another child. She ended up with two, and then she's, okay, God, it's enough. (laughs) But you see, sometimes we have things in our lives that we can put before the Lord. First place. And God says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. I think when I married my husband, I put him somewhat on a pedestal. Because he, w- he led me to the Lord, he was a-, a great influence in my life. And I tended to put him up here where only God could be. And you know, God knocked him off. Knocked him off that pedestal. Boom. I remember when we were pastoring, sometimes people would come up and, we just love you. We just love you. We'll never leave this church. And I'm thinking, they're the next ones to go. (laughs) Because God would not allow anyone to put us in that place that only he should be. Verse 21. Have you not known... Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. There are few in the United States that I wish he would make useless. There's one in California who just recently uh, knocked down Proposition 8, which all the voters of California voted that that same-sex marriage was not marriage, that marriage is between a man and a woman. And a judge in San Francisco said that's not constitutional for people to vote that way. And they're trying to make it legal in California. You know what? One day, that judge will stand before God. He'll make the judges as nothing. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he will also blow on them. And they will wither. And the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. I think of dandelions. I don't know. Do you have those here in England? All right. Well, you know how the dandelions will form that little fuzzy thing? And your children love to pick it and bring it to you. And then you can go, and it blows away. That's what I think about when I read that scripture. And then he says, to whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. Who brings out their host 
by number. He calls them all by name. You know, a few years ago, a movie came out, and it was called How Great Is Our God? And it had all these pictures of recent discoveries of planets and things like that. And, and man has found things that they never knew existed because of the uh, telescope thing that's over the world now. They found uh, pictures and all these things. And they give names to these suns that are so much bigger than our sun. And they're astounded at these things. And I'm thinking, but you know what? God already knows. He already knows all about the planets. He he already knows about these suns that are so many light years away from us. He's already named them. I bet our names don't even come close. Our God is an awesome God. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might, by the strength of his power. Not one is missing. Can you imagine if God decided just to let go of the sun and let it go its way? We'd all be crispy critters or frozen solid, wouldn't we? Our God keeps it all together. All things consist in him. Why do you say, oh, and you got to put your name there, girls. Oh, whatever your name is. And speak. (laughs) My way is hidden from the Lord. And my just claim is passed over by my God. Have you ever done that? Does God really care? Does God really know what I'm going through? Does he understand? My just claim has been passed over by the Lord. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, He doesn't faint. He doesn't grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. Isn't that exciting? I'm weak. I need him. I need his power. I need his strength. The creator of the ends of the earth neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord, those who hope in the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run. And not be weary. They shall walk. And not faint. That's an awesome promise for us girls. Because there are times. When we do become weary. When we do feel. That we are fainting. And he says. Hey turn to me. I'm mighty. I'm powerful. I can do it. I can give you the strength. I can enable you to mount up with wings. Like eagles. I can enable you to run and not be weary. I can enable you to walk and not faint. I am mighty God. I also want you to turn to Isaiah 61. And 
And you know, this is an interesting passage because when John the Baptist was in prison, John the Baptist, the one sent to proclaim the way that Messiah was, has come, John the Baptist, who stood against the Pharisees and the Sadducees and proclaimed that they were whitewashed sepulchres, this very one was taken and put in prison. And you know, when we're going through tough places, many times the enemy will assail us with doubts. And he sent word to Jesus with his, through his disciples, are you really the one? And Jesus quoted this. And he said these things. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To console those who mourn in Zion. To give them beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That they may be called trees of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. That he may be glorified. God had sent Jesus. God in the flesh. I like to say um, we talk about. The fact that it's the incarnation, God in the flesh. And, and in Spanish, the word for meat is carne. God, flesh. God in the flesh. He was sent to earth to do these things. To heal. To release the captives. To set us free. To give us that oil of, gla- of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And it's an awesome thing that we are going to be called the trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. There's another portion of scripture that I was just thinking about. And let me see if I can find it. It's right here in Isaiah 2. And it's talking about Jesus and... Where is it? Sorry. Take a little pause there. Ah. Let's see. It was what he actually quoted to John. Hmm. I'll find it. Just a minute. I'm sorry. (laughs) I should have had this written down. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The Spirit of the Lord. What, what, what? No, it's all in Isaiah. 61 I just read 60 16 60 60 maybe 60 I'm sorry I shouldn't even have brought it up I guess Uh, I have it marked nope huh oh this is good we're having a Bible drill it's talking about the spirit of wisdom here it is here it is I think so maybe 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 not. Okay. Yes, it is 11. That's not the one I was looking for, but that's okay. I'll read it because it's good. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, 
the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist." Nevertheless, when he gave John the quote, he was talking about healing and, and the blind would receive their sight and the, those that were lame would be healed. Can't find it, but it's there. Is it 61? Well, that's the one I just read. Well, maybe that was. <laughs> okay, we're going to move on. Nevertheless. <laughs> uh, da, da, da. 41. Yep. That's okay. Anyway. John, trust, I'm the one that God has sent. I love this. Look at verse 4 in 61. They will rebuild the old ruins. They will raise up the former desolations. They will repair the ruined cities and the desolations of many generations. Look what it says in verse 7. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. And instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double Everlasting joy shall be theirs. This is a promise to you. Everlasting joy shall be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth and will make with them an everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. And look at verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud. As the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth. So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. All of these are promises for us that were fulfilled when Jesus came and died on the cross. Those who were with Nehemiah had that joy of knowing that their sins had been forgiven. There's nothing greater than to know that our sins have been washed away. We now are clothed with these garments of salvation and the robes of righteousness. The people felt sad because they were aware of their sin. They could walk in joy now, though, because God was doing a work in their hearts. That's a joyful thing that he desires to deal with our hearts. Someone said our knowledge of sin should never be bigger than our knowledge of Jesus as our Savior. We are great sinners, but he is an even greater Savior. Amen? He is. He talks to us in Hebrews 12 about his discipline, that if we are truly his children, he will discipline us. Turn with me there, Hebrews 12. Y'all getting hot again? I'm getting a little warm. Okay. 
Look at this in verse 5. You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, my daughter, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For indeed, for a few days they chastened us as seemed best to them. But he, and here's the key right here, he for our profit, he disciplines me for my profit. Why? That I may be a partaker of his holiness. Remember I talked about the process of sanctification? Setting apart, setting us apart to deal with our hearts, to sanctify us, to bring us into that place where we're conformed to the image of Christ and we experience the holiness of Jesus. He does that through his chastening. God is very honest, though. Look at verse 11. No chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You know, as a parent, I felt many times that I may have disciplined my children, maybe in anger, and I would have to go back and apologize. I don't know if any of you have ever done that, but I did. I remember hearing Billy Graham's wife, Ruth Bell Graham, and she was on a radio program with her daughter. And she was, the, the person who was interviewing her said, Ruth, did you ever make any mistakes as a mother? She said, oh, yes, quite a few. She said, but at night I would go in and I would pray over my children and I would say, oh, Lord, I just pray you will cover my mistakes. As she was saying this, her daughter sitting next to her turned to her and said, Mom, you never made any mistakes. She said, see, God covered. (laughs) I made mistakes as a disciplinarian. But let me tell you something. God is the ultimate disciplinarian. He loves his children. And his discipline has a purpose that we would share his holiness. His discipline is done for the right reason. And as he does that disciplining, we become partakers of his holiness, and also it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained. His discipline has that purpose of training us. And training is kind of like he gives us boundaries. He gives us guidelines. You know, um, in the old days, ladies used to wear girdles to help train where things should go. (laughs) I can remember my aunt, my great aunt, had this big girdle. It went from tip to top. I mean, just all over and had these whale bones. It held her in, that's for sure. But, you know, those ladies walk very straight. 
because they had something that was holding them in. It was giving them boundaries, so to speak, for their, uh, <laughs> their parts. <laughs> and you know what? That's, that's what I think. It's a, it's a wonderful thing that he disciplines us, that he trains us, that he shows us our sin so that we can repent. You know, he forgave all of your sins on the cross. But 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's already forgiven me, but you see, I need to acknowledge my sin. I need to go before him and, and recognize that I have sinned. When I don't recognize that, it's like my heart becomes hardened before him. The deceitfulness of sin is the way it's described in Hebrews. I need to see that I am a sinner. But the awesome thing is, it says he is faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Isn't that a praise the Lord? That he does that. <coughs> okay. So the people in Nehemiah's time saw their sin. They um, asked for forgiveness, and they were set free from that sin. Israel's joy was based on the confidence that God was with her, that God protected her. I have been forgiven. I have no condemnation. I've been set free from sin, and I'm protected from the death produced by sin. Happy is the one whose sin is freely forgiven. Can you say amen? Amen. It is. You know when little kids get in trouble? They're almost happy when that discipline takes place. Because before that, they're trying to hide everything. They don't want mama to find out they're the ones that took the cookies out of the cookie jar. Or they're the ones that broke the vase. And they might try to glue it back together. They might try to hide it somewhere so mama won't see. But they're always kind of scared that one day she's going to find out. And when she does, it's almost a relief. Just give me my discipline, you know? And it's that way with us. The enemy will also lie to you, and he'll say, you can't go to God. You have done the ultimate. You can't turn to him. He's not going to accept you. And that's a lie from the pit. God wants us to come with, to him. He knows about it already. He wants us to come to him and admit that sin so that he can cleanse us and we can be restored and move forward. God will be faithful to his word to forgive us, to cleanse us, to give us eternal life. Psalm 28, 7 says this, The Lord is my strength and shield. I trust him with my heart. He helps me and my heart is filled with joy. I... <clears throat> Oh, I burst out in songs of thanksgiving. Is that your reaction? To burst out in songs of thanksgiving? Because you have trusted in him. Your heart is filled with joy. My joy will be in proportion to my trust in him. Trust who he is. Trust what he says. And trust what he does. I can trust him. That's the bottom line. Look at Psalm 20. Psalm 20, going back and forth. (coughs) 
May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice. May he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. We will rejoice in your salvation and in the name of our God we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. I can trust in him. I can trust in his forgiveness. I can trust in what his word says. I'm not trusting in man. I'm not trusting in chariots and horses. But I am trusting in him. And what does it say? He will send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. I want us to look at a person who had learned to trust God. Even when things were as bleak as they could possibly be. Turn to the book of Habakkuk. Or maybe you say it. Do you say Habakkuk? Is that how you say it? When I was growing up, they said Habakkuk. Habakkuk. I'm not sure if you say that. I don't know if you know about him. He was a prophet. He was a prophet in Judah. And I want you to look at chapter 1, verse 2. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw, Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Remember what we just read in Isaiah 61? He hears. We think he's not just. He doesn't hear my just cause, but he hears. How long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There's strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. God, do you see what's happening in my country? Do you see what's happening with the people? There's no justice. There's no righteousness. Everything's going to pot. What are you going to do about it, God? Maybe we might say that about situations in our life. What are you going to do about it, God? Now, I believe that Habakkuk had an answer in mind. Hey, I'm going to take care of it. I don't believe he had the answer in mind that God gave. And this is where trusting God comes into play. Will you trust me when my decisions in your life don't seem right? Do you know that in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, it says, Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. God's reply startled Habakkuk.
Because God said, look among the nations and watch, be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. Now, can you imagine? He's going, yes, God's going to get him. Oh, boy, I can't wait to see the revival. (laughs) And then God says, for indeed, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Oh, no, God, this can't be your answer. Do you know about the Chaldeans? They're worse. They're much worse than my people. And God even says that. He says, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fish, fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. Oh, my goodness. Is this your reply, God? You might say in your life, is this the answer? Is this what you're going to do? In verse 12, Habakkuk says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? What's that all about, God? But then Habakkuk said he would stand watch and see what God would say back to him. What would be God's reply? And the Lord answered in verse 2 of chapter 2. Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk, do you trust me? Are you going to believe that I know what I'm doing? Ladies, are you going to trust him? That he knows exactly what you're doing in your life? You know, so many times we fill our lives with things that we think will bring us contentment and joy. And God says, those things won't satisfy, but I will. Are you going to trust me? Are you going to rest in what I'm doing in your life? That I'm a faithful God. That I'm a knowledgeable God. I know exactly what needs to take place. And he continues with his talk with Habakkuk. Look at chapter 3. It begins for, with Habakkuk's prayer for mercy. He says in verse 2, O Lord, I've heard your speech and I was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. O God, be merciful to us. Now, God had a plan. You see, the people of Judah had rebelled against God. They had gone after the very idols that God told them not to have any part of. 
He told them when they went in to take the promised land, you've got to remove all the idolatrous people and all the idols because you're weak. You think you can handle it, but you can't. And they removed some, but they left a few there saying, oh, well, they're just going to be there to help us out. But the sad thing is, it says in uh, Jeremiah that the next generation didn't even know God because the people hadn't been obedient to what God said. God said, remove them. They will influence you. You know, sometimes in my life, I may think I'm strong. I may think I can handle things. I may think that I can do it. And God says, you better recognize that you're weak and you need me. You need to keep your eyes on me. You need to walk circumspectly before me. Sometimes we judge others when they fall into sin. I would never do that. That's what Peter said the night before Jesus was crucified. I would never deny you. Never. Jesus said, oh yes, Peter, you will. You will before the cock crows three times. You will deny me. I can't point the finger without recognizing that I'm capable of anything. So these people had allowed the idolatrous worship. They had allowed the idolaters to be in the land. And pretty soon, what happens? Compromise. Compromise. And they were doing the same thing. And now God was to punish these people because he loved them. He wanted to bring them back to himself. He allowed this uh, captivity to take place by the Chaldeans because he wanted his people to know him and to come back to him. He also knew that one day he would bring them back to this place. He knew one day he would restore Jerusalem. He would restore the temple. That was in the, uh, in the future. But you see, Habakkuk didn't know all of that. And then he said in verse 16, this is such an important statement. When I heard my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he would invade them with his troops. I mean, he knows what's getting ready to happen. He's scared to death. But then he says, though the fig tree may not, may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines... Though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold. Now, honey, that's getting as bad as it can get. And there be no herd in the stalls. I heard a song one time. It's about a farmer. It says, cow's got pneumonia, chicken's got the flu, the horse has laryngitis, and I don't know what I'll do. Don't start a farm. Don't start a farm. You'll end up in the poorhouse as sure as you are born. That's, that's this. <laughs> Ain't nothing good happening here. Right? No figs. No fruit. No olives. The fields have no food. The flock is cut off. There's no herd in the stalls. It's as bad as it can get. But look what he proclaims. Yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Can you say that? When you're going through things that are as bad as they can get, will you still choose to trust? 
Will you still choose to rest in him and know that he has a plan and know that he's in control? Will you say, as he said, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. What had God said? The just shall live by faith. And then in verse 19, he said, the Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high hills. Another version says high places. Not hills, not hills, H-E-E-L. Hills, (laughs) H-I-L-L. He made me walk on my high hills. (laughs) Sorry about that. That's that southern accent getting weird. I did have those ladies last weekend pray that y'all would understand me. Is he your strength? Is he your strength? I will rejoice. I will have joy in the midst of whatever comes my way. I will trust in you. Paul said this in Colossians 1.24, I now rejoice in my sufferings and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Rejoice in my sufferings. That's weird. How could Paul say such a thing? Because Paul knew that God had a plan. Paul knew that God was conforming him to the image of Christ. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 8. Maybe you can go along with Paul in saying this. We're hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed. Have you ever been perplexed about what God's doing in your life? We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. How could Paul make these proclamations? Look what he says in verse 10. Always. How how much is always? Always. Ooh, that's a long time. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. God has that plan that we mentioned in Romans 8 of conforming us to the image of Christ. But in order to be conformed, we have to die. As long as I'm on the throne of my life, as long as self is in control, I don't want to die. We don't like to die, do we? But death is so important. Look what it says in verse 11. For we who live are always, there's that word again, delivered to death. You know, when I talk about deliverance, I usually mean I'm taken out of the situation, right? I've been delivered. I've been set free. Well, this is delivering you to death. God knows how much you need to die to you. He needs that little bird in you to say, no longer. I'm going to die to me, but I'm going to live in Christ. 
So he delivers you over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? There's a purpose that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. I remember one time I was in the car and I was praying and I said, Oh God, I want to be obedient. And just like that, like a teleprompter, it went across my forehead. Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. And I said, retract the prayer. <laughs> we're, usually, we're usually praying for deliverance out of the trial, right? But you see, ladies, you've got to see it differently. This is God's purpose. This is God's plan because he wants to do an incredible work in you. He wants you dead. That's why I invented marriage. It's the best way to die. He searches the most opposite person in the whole world. And he brings you together. And he says, die. That's why there's no marriage in heaven. We're already dead. Don't need it anymore, right? And then as if marriage is not enough to kill us, he gives us children. Die, die, die. From beginning to middle to end, it's death. That's right. And those of you that are single, hey, you're not left out. You're a tough nut to crack. God says, I will be her husband. I have incredible plans for her. Her death will take place. Yeah. You see, you're always looking over at somebody else's situation. Oh, I want to be there. The grass is greener on the other side of the fence. But what you don't know. Her husband may be a chainsaw. <laughs> Tool of death, right? God knows. God knows what we need in our lives in order for us to die. I've had such a great marriage. <laughs> I really have. But you know what? It hasn't been easy. It's been tough. It's been really tough. But I'm going to tell you what. I wouldn't take anything for the difficulties. I wouldn't take anything for the hard times because I became aware of God's love in me, for me, when I felt no love for my husband. That was God's way of showing me his amazing, amazing love, and it wasn't my performance. I wouldn't take anything for it. God put me with the very person he wanted to put me with because I had a lot of dying to do. <laughs> That's right. And I'm still being crucified. <laughs> Not by him, but other stuff. <laughs> okay, you're delivered to death for Jesus' sake. Why? That the life of Jesus may be manifested through your mortal flesh. Then look at verse 12. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, According to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. You see, when I'm dead to me, it's an amazing thing. Then I become his vessel. That he can pour himself through me to others. He can bring that very life to others as I die. Look what it says in verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. 
even though our outward man is perishing. Have you looked in the mirror recently? I look in that mirror and I think, where are those crevices coming from? Pretty soon I'm going to eat my cereal and the milk will just roll right down my face. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. Hey, the Albert man is dying. You see those movie stars that get those face fixes. It's scary. You can go dong, dong, dong. You know, they're stretched. Pretty soon the ears are going to be behind the head. But no matter how much they do it, it's still going to happen. Aging's still going to take place. But look what it says. Even though my outward man is perishing, hallelujah, the inward man is being renewed day by day. That's exciting. For our light affliction. I love the way God phrases this. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment. And you're going, hello, it doesn't seem like a moment. It's for a purpose. Look what it's doing for you. It's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. This is eternity. This is a work God's doing in us. You see, this life is but a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. It's but a vapor. What matters is eternity. What matters is the work that God does in it here in me, renewing me day by day, preparing me for eternity. For our light affliction, what is much for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's what matters. Paul said in Philippians, he said, all these other things in life don't matter to me. All that really counts, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him. Is that the cry of your heart? I want to know him, that I may know him. This is chapter 3 of Philippians. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. You know, when you think about resurrection, a lot of times people get stuck on the word power. The power, oh, I want power from God, woo. But it's the power of resurrection. You can't have resurrection until you have death. So the power of his resurrection is talking about me dying to me, but the life of Jesus being resurrected through me. The power of his resurrection. The fellowship of his sufferings. Oh, there is a sweet fellowship when we suffer in the Lord. You know, there's a sweet fellowship when someone has gone through things that you are going through and they come and God ministers through them to you. That comfort is so sweet because you know that they've been there 
They've experienced what you've experienced. And God has ministered to them. You know, that day that I said that lady came in when I was there with my daughter, right as she had died, and she said, I came to share with you how God comforted me. And as she finished sharing, tears were streaming down my face, and I said to her, you truly have been comforted by God. And now God is comforting me through you. The fellowship of his suffering. But look at the end result. What does it say? Being conformed to his death. That's his purpose. Conform me to the image of Christ. I got one more passage to share with you tonight. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's very familiar. 2 Corinthians 12. Again, this is Paul the Apostle. And you see, God had given Paul many revelations. God had, he said, he, ta- he went into the heavens and he saw visions and revelations. And he, he said, I know a man in Christ, which is himself, who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or rather out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. I didn't even know there were three heavens, did you? But he was caught up to the third heaven. He saw all of these things which can't even be uttered. And then in verse 7 it says this, Unless I be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, I got a gift. I got a gift from God. A thorn in the flesh. No thanks, send it back. He got a gift from God because God knew that if he allowed that pride to dwell in Paul's heart, from all the revelations and all the visions that he had seen, that that pride would destroy him. So God gave Paul a thorn in the flesh. And it says this was a buffeter, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pled with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. I think I probably would have pled a lot more than that. Take it away. I don't want it. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, this is rejoicing, most gladly I will rather boast of my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's not normal. But you see, God, uh, Paul knew that God had an eternal plan. And Paul knew that all these things that he was experiencing, God was going to use to further that ministry that he had called him to. He would remove that pride through that buffeter, that messenger from Satan. And his grace would be sufficient. Therefore, I take pleasure. You know what, ladies? There are a lot of things we can take pleasure in, right? Paul says here, I take pleasure in infirmities. Can you say that? I take pleasure in infirmities. He says, I take pleasure in reproaches. When somebody talks about you to other people or somebody comes and attacks you. I remember I was dean of women at the Bible college in Marietta. And one day, one of the 
staff members came to my table when I was in the cafeteria and the girls, some of my students were sitting with me and this person proceeded to tell me something I did wrong in no uncertain terms and kind of harshly. And I'm just sitting there going, oh. And then the person left. And I could feel those tears rising. I had just been reproached greatly. But I was also studying this passage. I quickly gathered my tray and said, oh, I'll see you later, girls, and put my tray away and ran to my car because I knew all of a sudden there was going to be a big explosion of tears. I got in my car. I started driving toward the front gate, and the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart. And he said, I've just given you an opportunity to die. I said, Lord, I didn't want to die in front of people. I want to die in my closet. (laughs) He said, I've given you an opportunity to die, but I also want you to pray for that person. He's going through something. You know, people don't throw up on you like that unless something's happened in their life. He said, I want you to pray for him. So I want you to rejoice in that I'm giving you an opportunity to die, but I also want you to pray for that person. And you know what? It was really joyous because as I prayed for him, knowing what God told me, then I didn't have that anger, that bitterness, that I don't ever want to see that person again. You know how? You walk by, hmm, I don't see you. (laughs) You've embarrassed me. I didn't have that because God did a work in my heart. Wasn't me, ladies. I didn't think it up, but he said, I am enabling you to die. And he said, my grace is sufficient. Do you know that I got a letter from one of those students in my mailbox the next week? And she said this. She said, thank you for letting me see Jesus in you today. I thought, but Jesus did the work in the car. But God let her see it ahead of time. Isn't that cool? (laughs) That's God. That's God. He will allow those infirmities, those reproaches, those insults. He will allow needs, persecutions, distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And ladies, I see that it's not my strength. It's him. It's his strength. It's his grace. It's his power. And I'll have to tell you, it brings joy when you recognize where it's coming from. It's from him. Because he loves me. Because he's my father. Because he wants to do things in my heart. Because he wants to conform me to the image of Christ. Because he wants me to be used for his glory. God is good. Let's pray. Lord, how we thank you and praise you and magnify you that you have an amazing plan for each life in this room, that you love these women so abundantly, that you love them so much, God, that you will discipline, that you will do a work in us, a work that we can't even see that needs to be done. We thank you, God, that you enable us, you deliver us over to death that the life of Christ can be manifested through our mortal bodies. 
we give you praise. And Lord, I just lift up each one in this room tonight. If there is anyone in this room who has never accepted your gift of salvation, I pray tonight would be that night. Oh, Lord, that that one might know you and know your love and have that righteousness that only comes from you and have eternal life forever with you. I pray for those in this room, God, who have been going through tough places and you say, trust, trust in me. I am faithful. I will keep my word. I will do what I say. I know the plans I have for you. Lord Jesus, increase our faith. We thank you. We praise you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.